0: You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.
0: Happy 2024. Happy Epiphany.
1: Happy Epiphany. Happy New Year.
0: All the things. to a new year of The Coffee Hour. Yes. It's Um, very exciting. By now, there should be a new copy, a new issue of The Lutheran Witness on your coffee table as well. I hope so. So we're going to dig into that this morning as we look at Searching Scripture with a new guest for this series this year. Very excited to be digging into God's Word with Uh, Pastor Roth this morning, Mm. which might be a familiar voice you recognize here on KFUO. Thanks to Concordia (laughs) University, Wisconsin, for supporting the Coffee Hour. You can find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu.
1: Live Uncommon.
0: Joining us today, the Reverend Carl Roth of Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome to the Coffee Hour. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, you're you're this isn't new for you. You're a regular <laughs> guest here on KFUO, usually studying God's word on Sharper Iron with Pastor Apple. Mm-hmm. We're going to but we stole you for <laughs> for the coffee hour to dig into God's word as we we're searching scripture in the January issue of the Lutheran Witness. Thanks for spreading yourself across all the KFUO <laughs> programs here and and being our guest on the coffee hour.
2: Oh, thank you. I really enjoy doing these.
0: We are taking a look at the January issue of The Lutheran Witness and starting a new series in Searching Scripture. We're moving into 1 Peter this year. Any notes that you have for us before we dig into the text?
2: Well, 1 Peter is... I think a, maybe a little bit of a neglected epistle. We as Lutherans, are our hero is of course the apostle Paul, and maybe maybe First Peter gets a little bit of a short shrift. But it was one of Doctor Luther's favorite epistles, and and highlights it as one that Christians should be very familiar with. And so, I think this it's also an excellent text for guiding Christians on on how to live their daily lives in the midst of a lost and fallen world as elect exiles, as I've entitled the series because the theme of exile being strangers in a foreign land on our way to our heavenly home is, is dominant in this epistle. That is our reality, and this epistle will help us live out our lives as elect exiles here.
1: All right. I'm very excited for this. It's always fun to dig into a new book of the Bible. So let's start with question one. What does First Peter 1, verse 1, tell us about its author? According to Mark 3, verses 13 through 16, Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, and 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, what does the word apostle, which means one who is sent, convey to the recipients?
2: All right, so 1 Peter 1, 1 begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting that with salutations of letters, we tend to just skip over the words very quickly. We do that also, say, with the name Jesus, when we we see Jesus so often in the New Testament that we just rush right past it. But, you know, every time we see it, it means Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord saves. And so we, we should slow down as we're reading Scripture and really meditate on each verse and sometimes even individual words within that verse. So we're told that Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that takes us back then to the original election of the apostles by Jesus. And it's important to make a distinction between the term disciple and apostle. In Mark 3, Jesus went up on a mountain and called to, the, to himself those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then we have Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, is the first one listed. So, a disciple is a learner or a follower of Jesus. Apostle is a special category. These are the men that Jesus specifically selected to be the preachers and teachers. And then they would go on to train others who we call pastors so that disciples could be made from all nations through baptism and faith. And when we hear that an apostle is speaking, this really should catch our ear. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, the apostles, such as himself, when we hear their words, Paul says, it is not the word of men, but it is really the word of God that is at work in you believers. So these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, should catch our attention and say, we're listening to God himself speaking, not just any old man off the street. Hmm.
0: All right. So, question, are we ready for question two? Sure. Mm -hmm. All right. The immediate recipients of this epistle are the elect exiles of the dispersion. In five areas of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, the diaspora or dispersion was originally a term used for the Jews who are scattered outside of Palestine due to various exiles and persecutions but was, no longer, was later used to describe Christians dispersed throughout the various places, such as in Acts chapter 8, 4, and 11, where they spread the word. Another way of translating the word for exiles is strangers or people in unfamiliar territory and viewed with suspicion by those around them. How does the fact that these recipients are elect or chosen by God comfort them in their wanderings? See, John chapter 15, verse 16, and Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6.
2: All right. So we've now entered into kind of a thematic territory for the book of of 1 Peter, and that is dealing with the ideas of election and also being exiles. We get it actually combined in this same verse. And so we sing in one of our hymns, I'm but a stranger here, heaven is my home. This notion of the Christian life as a pilgrimage or a journey through a strange land is, of course, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament alike. And so since our kingdom is not of this world, as Jesus said of his his own kingdom, but is a heavenly kingdom, we oftentimes might feel like strangers, aliens, and exiles here on earth. And Peter's epistle is designed to help us understand this is what we should expect that we are in fact going to have a strangeness about us, a peculiarity that is going to set us apart from others. But through it all, we can know that we've been specifically chosen by God to be his light in the world. And Jesus reminds us in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And so even though we oftentimes feel this alienation and this strangeness about us and maybe are rejected by unbelievers or not accepted even by our own families, we can cling to the fact that Jesus has chosen each one of us to be one of God's beloved children and that the main vocation we have each day is to bear fruit according to his word. Paul, likewise in Ephesians 1, reminds us of our eternal election. That God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless through the forgiveness of our sins, and so we never need to doubt, based on our external circumstances, whether or not we are in fact God's children. His election of grace holds us in His loving hands, and nothing can snatch us from His hands. All right,
1: question three. This is a short question. Which fundamental Christian doctrine is referred to in First Peter one verse two? Compare with Matthew 28, 19 and 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14.
2: Right. So 1 Peter 2, 1, 2 says that we have become elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, we've it seems like it leaps off the page, but it, it's all over the New Testament. Oftentimes, we get these Trinitarian patterns. We've got God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ, who is, of course, the Son. And that is pointing us to our baptismal, the baptismal reality that we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as we oftentimes hear in the blessing at the end of the church service, not the Aaronic benediction, but the blessing that you you use in other services, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So although first Peter doesn't mention baptism right here yet, we're going to get some baptismal references later on in the epistle. That should immediately come to mind and remind us that the, the election of each of us has been shown through our baptism in the triune name.
0: Anything else on question three before we go on to question four? I'm ready for four. All right. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. How does baptism assure Christians that they have been born again to a living hope? See John 3, verses 3 through 6, Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. According to Colossians 2, 11 to 12, how is baptism connected with Christ's resurrection? All right, so let's talk about baptism in 1 First Peter.
2: First Peter. 1 Peter 1.3 is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, again, we have not gotten specific mention of holy baptism, water and word, but we are reminded that we're born again. And that immediately makes us think of John chapter 3, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is a passage that we use in our catechisms to really remind us of what happens in baptism. We're born of water and the Spirit. In the third part of uh, the cate- catechism section on baptism, Titus 3, 4-7 to is actually uh, referenced at length. And there we're told that we have received the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, and to be regenerated means to be born again, and God has poured, us out on, poured this out upon us through Christ so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That language of hope, which we hear in Titus 3 and in our catechism, is also echoed here in First 1 Peter 1, 1.3. We have been born again to a living hope. And I want to briefly mention that the word hope uh, is something that is watered down in our own language today and has a very uh, definite meaning in the Christian faith, different from what we use on a daily basis. So I hope that Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl this year, but I have no idea whether they will or not right? So we often use hope in a very uncertain sense. That is not at all how the Bible intends for us to understand hope. Rather, we could understand it either as expectation on the basis of God's promises or just waiting for it on the basis of God's promises. And an analogy that's not perfect, but I think is pretty good is it would be weird for me to say, I hope the sun comes comes up tomorrow because, you know, in all likelihood, it's going to come up unless the last day has come. So I would rather say, I've gotten up early. I'm going to wait for the sun to come up, and I expect it to rise at 7.03 a.m. And so in the same way, our hope that we have as baptized Christians is not uncertain at all. It's just a matter of waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled, to take us to our heavenly home and resurrect us from the dead.
0: We are searching scripture in the January issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Carl Roth of Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.
0: At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others. To live a life of self sacrifice in a me first world. To live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50 plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at CUW.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Aidy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.
0: We are searching scripture in the January issue of The Lutheran Witness. Our guest for this series, the Reverend Carl Roth of Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. All right, Pastor Roth, are we ready to go on to the next question? I believe that brings us to question five. Is that right?
2: Yes, I just wanted to pick up one more quick theme from sure. uh, the fourth question related to Colossians 2, 11 and 12, which is very similar to Romans 6, 3 and 4, which again is in our Catechism about our baptismal death and resurrection with Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I wanted to uh, just remind believers that that living hope expectation that we have is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is the reason why all of God's promises are 100% reliable. He promised that he would die. He uh, said that he would rise. It happened. And so now we rely upon his unfailing word and our baptism into Christ, United with his death and resurrection
0: gives us this daily certainty of our own resurrection. All right, question number five. Read first Peter chapter one, verse four. How does our promised inheritance compare with any earthly inheritance? Compare with Matthew chapter six, verses nineteen to twenty one
2: So in verse three, we heard that we'd been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse four to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you all right so these these adjectives are really important imperishable undefiled and unfading if we were to compare those adjectives with the nature of earthly treasures earthly inheritances it reminds us of matthew 6 where jesus says do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy And where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's really two things Jesus is doing here. One is, of course, he's telling us that we should find our treasure in heaven, and that that is going to be an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that we're going to receive with the perfection of the resurrection. But he's also reminding us that we as sinners so often put our hearts on perishable earthly treasures, and our, our hearts oftentimes put their trust in him. That's, in fact, the definition of idolatry, is fearing, loving, and trusting in anything other than the triune God. So we as Christians should keep this image of the what the Christians have often called the beatific vision, this perfection of splendor that we're going to experience in heaven by the God who's able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine and present to us this wonderful inheritance that is without limit. It's going to be a place of growth and joy and splendor with none of the sorrows and sighing of this fleeting world.
1: All right, question six. Many people view Christian faith as a power or even our own work, but according to 1 Peter 1 verse 5, what guards and sustains our faith? What, in fact, is the source of our faith? See Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9.
2: All right, so 1 Peter 1, 5. Who, that is the believers and the elect exiles, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so pretty straightforwardly here, it's God's power that guards us through faith. And so often people do look at faith as something inside of themselves that they generate. you got to have faith, right? you got to have more faith. And if you don't have enough faith, then you're not going to get blessings from God, things like that. But First Peter completely rules out that possibility because it's God's power that is guarding and keeping us in the one true faith. And in Ephesians 2, Paul wonderfully explains expresses this he says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast in first corinthians 4 paul asks this sort of rhetorical question what do you have in life that you didn't receive the reality is that the only thing maybe we could really claim is our own sins which is a pretty paltry offering to God. In fact, it's the reason that our Lord Jesus Christ shed his holy precious blood and innocently suffered and died for us. So keeping in mind that even our faith is a gift of God and that it's God's power that supports and defends us uh, reminds us that our own works are appreciated by God and blessed by God and are in fact gifts of God as well as he goes on in the next verse to say, Ephesians 2.10, that God has prepared good works for us to do in advance beforehand, that we should just walk in them. So we can think of our Christian lives as one in which we've been given the gift of faith, and then he just sets us on a path, and we just walk along and, oh, look, there's a good work to pick up that God's put there for me, and then we just do it by walking in a vocation.
0: All right, question seven. Some Christians seek outward signs to confirm their faith and election, such as temporal prosperity or mystical experiences. How does first Peter one verses six through nine orient our expectation for the Christian life?
2: All right, Peter says in this, that is, in salvation, in the salvation that's going to be revealed, you rejoice obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, in contrast to the outward signs that are alluded to in the question, Peter really grounds us in understanding that, first of all, we might necessarily face trials and tribulations in this life. St. Paul says, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So, these prosperity gospel notions of health, wealth, and prosperity for the christian are disabused here and first one of the other major themes of first peter is how to suffer as a christian and the fact that suffering is going to come into our lives and that we shouldn't be surprised by it it is something that god uses to shape us and as he says here test the genuine genuineness of our faith throughout the old testament god is continually testing the israelites as they wander in the wilderness and what what we find is that we normally are failing the test, so that leads us to repentance, and so we can turn to the Lord to receive mercy and strength from him. And we also are are, are given clearly the idea of living by faith, not by sight. As Peter, as Jesus says to, to Thomas after the resurrection, yeah, what, you believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The Christian life is one of faith, not one of sight, not one of experience even, but rather clinging to the word. And ultimately, what is our hope that we rejoice in? The salvation of our souls, which is the most precious gift we could ever receive.
1: All right, question eight. Compare 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11 with Acts 8, verses 26 through 40. What do these passages teach about the nature of the Old Testament and its ultimate purpose?
2: So Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. There's something really peculiar going on here. Based on this passage, it seems that the Old Testament prophets must have received revelations from the Lord and then actually studied their own texts to see when the the promised christ would come so it's a really cool notion of of god giving the word to the prophet not for himself just to you know sit on or just to be the the conveyor of it but rather to study it himself and we see in the in acts chapter 8 the story of the ethiopian eunuch and philip encountering him on the road down from jerusalem through gaza We see that the Ethiopian is actually reading Isaiah 53, reading about a sheep that was led to the slaughter. And Philip asked him, how how do you understand what you're reading? Or do you know what he's talking about? And the guy says, well, how can I know unless someone reveals it to me? So even the prophets who received these prophecies maybe didn't completely understand them, but actually continued to study them so that the Holy Spirit would reveal to them the teaching about the coming of Jesus. And of course, what does Philip do? He teaches the good news about Jesus on the basis of that text from Isaiah 53. And that's why the New Testament then is is suffused with references to the Old Testament, because the fulfillment has now come through Jesus Christ our Lord, and we can continue to return to that word so that the Holy Spirit can strengthen our faith.
0: Question number nine. This month's Lutheran Witness teaches about worship, uh, the worship of the church, what part of the communion liturgy does 1 Peter 1, verse 12 remind you of?
2: All right, 1 Peter 1, 12. It was revealed to them, that is, to the prophets who were writing in the Old Testament, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So this month's Lutheran Witness, as we said, is, is talking about worship of the church. We get a very clear reference to the preaching of the word here, right? So but I, I want to focus on the communion liturgy in just a second. But first of all, that the good news has been announced that was originally written among the, by the prophets through the Holy Spirit has now been revealed to us so that we can recognize Jesus Christ as our Lord, continue to gather together to worship him, praise him and what part of the communion liturgy does it remind me of it's things into which angels long to look and in the preface to the the proper preface to the holy communion we say with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven we gather around god's glorious throne evermore praising him and saying holy 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 so the the christian worship especially the communion liturgy is this wonderful experience of the lamb of god coming down from heaven and being there under his under bread and wine as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and even feed us with his body and blood. And angels long to look into this. What a privilege then as Christians that God didn't send an angel to save us, he sent his beloved son. And even angels rejoice at this. And I suspect the conversation in heaven revolves around Jesus Christ.
0: Amen. Any final thoughts as we wrap up our time together today, Pastor?
2: Well, one of the reasons I selected elect exiles based on 1st Peter's the theme is cuz this is election year in the United States of America and that's going to preoccupy a lot of our attention between now and the second Tuesday in November. But what I want to remind All of us, each day of, is that the most important election has already occurred, that God has chosen you in Jesus Christ, you know it by your baptism, and though you are pilgrims and strangers here on earth, you've been chosen by God, and he will lead you through this world of sin and sorrow to the heavenly home, and ultimately
0: resurrection and life eternal. Our guest today, the Reverend Carl Roth of Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, thanks for joining us today on The Coffee Hour. It's a pleasure to be with you. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.